0: Well, let me add my uh, welcome to those of Derek. It's a great pleasure to uh, have you all here today to uh, Mark Frenton cleavys inaugural lecture. Mark followed a very varied career path before joining the Open University as a business school academic. I actually thought he seems remarkably well-equipped to be a vice chancellor. His previous occupations include school groundsman, commie chef, therapist with emotionally disturbed adolescents an outdoors pursuits instructor. His subsequent academic career has been no less eclectic. After graduating from Warwick with a degree in pure mathematics, he studied psychotherapy and psychology, gaining a PGCE from Bangor, and then later an MBA from the London Business School before finally obtaining his PhD for research into the role of middle managers, also from the London Business School. In common, therefore, with many of our staff and students, his willingness to embrace a variety of work experiences and academic disciplines has, of course, benefited and enriched the work that he is now doing. The transdisciplinary nature of his research is nowhere better reflected than in his recent book with Nigel Nicholson and Emma Soam on the role of traders in investment banks. This ESRC-funded work examined how traders behave in financial markets, the kind of people that they are, how they make decisions, and how they judge risk. In carrying out their research, the authors drew on their expertise in the social sciences, occupational psychology, and economics in order to understand how traders view their world and thereby gain an invaluable insight into how financial institutions and indeed markets operate. Mark's academic career began at the London Business School and he joined the Open University in 1997 as a lecturer in management and became professor of organizational behavior in 2005. He currently holds the position of director of programs and curriculum. He's also just come to the end of a one-year term as director of one of the four national centers of excellence in teaching and learning, um, the Center for Practice-Based Professional Learning. And their very first Kettle conference was recently held to mark this first successful year, and was based on the theme, How Will You Change the OU? They didn't invite me, so... (laughs) The premise underlying the conference was that real change does not come from the top. If the OU is to transform itself, it will happen as a result of the expertise, innovation and commitment of people throughout the university, and may even overturn many of our plans about where we are headed. Close quote. One workshop which Mark facilitated sought to identify some of the key barriers to innovation which have been erected at the OU in recent years in order then to be able to explore ways to make successful innovation possible, a topic which I must say is very pertinent to the university's current strategic initiatives. Mark is on the Programmes Committee of the Association of Business Schools, an independent network association which serves as an authoritative voice of business and management education in and for the UK. He's published widely in various fields, which include human resource management, middle management behaviours and beliefs, employee involvement, and decision-making in finance. Some of his recent research has focused on the processes by which management practices are translated across national borders and by different cultures and different social and economic institutions and then the ways, of course, that they are transformed and corrupted in the process. The title of Mark's lecture is Lost in Translation, The Travel of Management Ideas and Practice, and I'm sure you join me in looking forward to this lecture. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to invite Mark fenton creedy to address us. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Vice-Chancellor. It's a delight to see uh, so many old friends here today. Um, But I I have set myself quite a challenge because I've got an audience which includes my 10-year-old son, Toby. It includes my wife, my mother, my mother-in-law. It includes a wide range of colleagues and old friends, research collaborators. It includes Nigel Nicholson, my PhD supervisor, uh, who later became a friend and a collaborator. So, whether I can actually uh, say anything that is going to be interesting to everybody assembled in the audience is a a bit of a challenge. Um, As um, the Vice-Chancellor has pointed out, um, becoming a professor sort of took me by surprise, actually. I I only really became an academic in 1990 at the age of 32, and had done quite a lot of different things before that. Uh, But as you'll have gathered from the introduction, I have um, had quite a... um, An interesting route to where I am and my own academic career has taken a number of different routes. But in a sense what this lecture I'm going to try and do is to try and draw together some of the different threads in my my academic career around this theme of translation. And I'm going to look at three particular areas where I think translation is important. The first is the notion, and this, this relates to a lot of research that I've done with my uh, long-term collaborator Stephen Wood down there, uh, amongst others, um, the the way in which management ideas get translated across national boundaries, uh, especially within multinationals, not only within multinationals. Uh, secondly, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at what happens when you try and translate uh, management ideas from the private sector into public sector institutions. Um, I may even make a few suggestions about what happens when you try and do it in a university. Uh, Finally, uh, something that's been very close to my heart over the last year uh, is the theme of what happens when you translate management ideas between the academy and the workplace because that's very much what the Centre for Practice-Based Professional Learning has been concerned with and and how does one educate professionals in ways that take account of the the need to translate between different areas of of knowledge. I'm going to give an introductory example to, um, to, to get us there. Um, In the mid-90s, what was then British Rail was broken up into about 100 different operating units which were then privatised. And one of the things that I don't confess to very often um, is that I was involved with uh, Paul Willman, amongst other colleagues, in doing quite a lot of management development and consulting uh, with the organisation as it was being privatised. and um, some, Some research built on that as well. And um, one of the things that I became uh, aware of was the real challenge that people were facing in this organisation. What, what was basically going on was there you'd been as a manager, right in the middle of this enormous organisation that was publicly owned, and suddenly you found yourself at the top of a small or medium-sized organisation that was working in a marketplace. So um, some of the ideas that started to become quite important Um, And quite important for managers to get understood throughout the organisations they were working in were around customer service. They were trying to do things like use a very clearly stated mission as a tool for helping employees understand what they're doing and why. And they needed to increase productivity if they were to stay competitive compared with some of the other parts of the organisation. And safety became a big issue in a very different way because instead of having one organisation that safety had to be managed within, what you had is you had hundreds, literally, of bits of organisations that had to manage safety between them. So if you were a track worker and um, before all the people who were looking after your safety were part of the same organisation, now you were working in a contract organisation and you were relying on a signalman who worked in a completely different company uh, to ensure your safety... And to ensure that trains didn't come down the track while you're working there. So there had to be a contractual approach to safety arrangements, and that had to be driven through. I'm uh, going to show you in a short while a, a clip from Ken Loach's film, The Navigators, uh, which is a somewhat polemic, but actually, I think, quite accurate account of some of the things that went on in British Rail at the time. And as you'll observe in the film, all of these ideas that I've got up on the slide are there, in a sense, in the team briefing that's being given. But the question I'd like you to think about is: Are they, in any sense, being translated into the context that they're being uh, put into? Yeah, I've
2: got something important to tell you here. The briefing I'm going to tell you about, because uh, it's about your new company, East Midlands Infrastructure. All right? I've got a briefing about it here. You're not yeah. rail workers anymore. Uh, you're now East Midlands Infrastructure, for now anyway. Uh, you don't work for British Rail, and we've got to win contracts from the, the, the rail track company. Uh, and we've got a managing director to, to win the work for us, all right? Uh, because now, in the future, just... Uh, just... All right, all right, listen. Just doing the job <coughs> is not going to be good enough in the future, right? You've got to do it well if we're going to succeed. And we've got to advertise our skills and we've got to have a mission statement. What's a mission statement? Mission impossible. (laughs) Mission (laughs) impossible. All right, all right. Keep the banter down, lads. Let's keep it serious. This is important stuff you've got to to listen to here. Look, a mission statement is is where we say what we're going to do, and then we have to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm off to work. (laughs) right. right. All right. I've got
3: bloody bloody, bloody,
2: bloody, bloody things to do than to bloody go on talking to you lads about this. All right, now, come on. That's the way things are going to be done in the future, right? Now, listen, because to succeed in the marketplace, we've got to sell our way carefully, and we've got, to look,
0: we've got to look
2: after the customer if we're going to keep them, all right? And we've got to have safety written into the contract, uh, because if we don't work safely, well, we don't work at all, all right? We and, all work uh, safely. Eh? We all just work safely. Well, you try, but it's not as safe as when I used to do this, I'll tell you that. Oh. <laughs> 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 that's,
4: that's, that's you might bloody scoff, uh, but
2: it's bloody true. Uh, some, of the, some of the old lads, I wish uh, they were still here. Uh, Show you bloody lads, I think it's all true. true. Old, <laughs> old, <laughs> old Len knows what I'm talking about, he's one of the lads. <laughs> old lenham <laughs> <old> Len <laughs> Len to bloody clue what you're talking about. Oh, now listen, hang on, now this really is important, all right. We've had a bit of fun, lads, but now come on, get, it, get serious now. Look, deaths have got to be kept to an acceptable level. Oh, <laughs> hang on, <laughs> look, 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 right, hang hang on, people. shut up, shut up. What's an acceptable level? Uh, two a year. Yeah, but nobody's, <laughs> been, nobody's been
3: killed for the past 18 months. Yeah. <laughs> Any volunteers?
2: Look, I'm just bloody telling you
1: what it says here, right? <clears throat> okay, it's a film. Uh, but not in my experience, uh, that far away from what actually went on in this organisation. And incidentally, um, there's a couple of bits there that I, I happen to know to be reasonably authentic. The bit about two deaths a year, keeping deaths to within two deaths a year, is pretty authentic. Um, as was that phrase, if we don't work safely, we don't work at all. It was a slogan that was doing the rounds at the time. Um, so. I think what what we see there is we see a complete failure to translate what were some quite important ideas um, for this organisation at the time into the context in which they need to be put into practice. Although it's pretty likely that somewhere somewhere in in the organisation was able to tick a box which (laughs) said uh, communication plan and team briefing successfully rolled out. I want to talk a little bit about context and and the importance of context and I want to um, take a little while to persuade you of three things. The first I want to persuade you of is that all knowledge and practice exist in a context. Some scholars use this phrase, situated. And secondly, that knowledge and practices don't transfer between contexts. They actually have to be translated. In fact, if you're going to take a set of ideas from one context and apply them in a new context, <clears throat> mostly what's going on is you're creating new knowledge. You're not just taking something. As it, knowledge isn't a thing that you can lift from here and put here. There's, there's a translation process required. And actually the context that we're all in, the, uh, the water in which we swim, the context that mostly we take for granted and is fairly invisible to us, uh, is very important in how we understand and see things. And I, uh, <clears throat> At this point I could start using all sorts of long academic words like uh, socially constructed reality, institutions, or if there's a bit more on the cognitive uh, psychology side, uh, distributed cognition. I'm going to avoid the temptation, but I I do want to make some of the points that lie behind some of that kind of language. So if I take this bottle top and let go of it, it's going to fall down whether I believe in gravity or not. But many facts that face me in the world in which I exist um, are social facts, and they exist only because I believe in them and because other people believe in them. So if I walk into a shop and I hand over some pieces of money with a particular pattern printed on it, some paper, and I get a cup of coffee and a sandwich in exchange and some metal discs back, most of us understand what's going on, and we've got a commonly agreed set of mental models about what's going on there. Similarly, we all seem to have a similar notion of (coughs) this idea of lecture. At least nobody's tried to get up on the stage with me yet. Nobody is having a conversation in the audience. People seem to be playing at least some kind of facsimile of uh, of paying attention to me. So uh, we have this common mental idea of what what a lecture is. The thing is that these social facts change as you move from context to context and from setting to setting. To give you an example, um, and this is quite important in some of the work I've been doing, If you uh, talk to people in Germany or in this country, uh, for example, and you're interested in fairness, what people mostly take to be fair is that universally applied rules that are applied in the same way to everybody uh, apply. If you go to China, Italy to some extent, what's taken to be fair is that you pay due regard to the obligations of your social networks. It's fair to put family first. It's fair to treat people who you've got social obligations to in a completely different way to strangers. So the notions of fairness, the social facts about fairness, change from context to context. Another bit of evidence. This uh, is an illustration from a film, My Fair Lady. It's a retelling of Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion. And Audrey Hepburn plays the role of Liza, a flower girl, who Professor Higgins bets a friend he can pass off as a duchess at a society ball. And in this clip, she's made great progress in the understanding and practice of both the diction and the deportment, which characterise this social class with which she's going to be mixing. Um, And as Professor Higgins introduces her to his mother at Ascot and to her friends, we begin to see that this knowledge and practice of deportment and diction has a very important context, social context that it's embedded in, and it's rather difficult just to translate it on its own. So let's see what happens.
4: Hasn't it suddenly turned chilly? I do hope we won't have any unseasonable cold spells. They bring on so much influenza, and the whole of our family is susceptible to it. My aunt died of influenza, so they said. But it's my belief they'd done the old woman in... Done her in, yes, Lord love you. Why should she die of influenza when she come through diphtheria right enough the year before? Fairly blue that she was. They all thought she was dead. But my father, he kept ladling gin down her throat. (laughs) Then she come to so sudden she bit the bowl off the spoon. Dear me. Now what call would a woman with that strength in her have to die of influenza? And what become of her new straw hat that should have come to me? Somebody pinched it. And what I say is, them as pinched it, done her in. Have I said anything I (laughs) oughtn't?
1: Well, of course, in this this clip we see a collision of very different sets of tacit social understandings about how the world works and what are suitable topics for conversation. Just as earlier, in the British Rail example, we saw a complete failure to communicate a set of ideas because of a failure to understand the different contexts they needed to be translated between. Another example I came across recently was a company in Shanghai, a subsidiary of an American company, and they'd just been sent a manual of procedures for recruitment set out the procedures to be followed in recruiting employees and they emphasize as they properly would in an american company uh, open advertisement definition of specific criteria for person and job specification and a formal system of testing and criterion based interviewing and they come from a context in which uh, not only the culture but the legal system the business system assuming the best outcomes come from a process which doesn't discriminate on the basis of background or connections that education and job skills are the most important issues. In China, there's a different set of assumptions. Fairness and justice, as we talked about earlier, don't depend on applying the same rule transparently. They depend on honouring the obligations that come with membership of a social network. You don't understand someone's likely commitment and trustworthiness by subjecting them to job tests or or looking at their job history. You look to the nature of their social networks and choose someone who's likely to be tied into your own. One of the reasons why Chinese uh, businessmen find it difficult to do business with Europeans is they wonder if they can trust us because they wonder if we don't have those kinds of social networks, who can they go to and ask to bring us into line if we fail uh, their trust. In this case, the manual stayed on the shelf. We can see another example on the news daily, actually. The US and the UK governments have Uh, set out to transfer a political system, democracy, into a new context, Iraq. But there's there's an enormous difference between the context these ideas and practices come from and the context of application. In their original context, these ideas and practices are embedded in a set of social institutions which took hundreds of years to build up. You don't just take it from one setting and put it into another. And the difficult process of translation is before our eyes daily on the news. I want you to divide yourselves into two groups. So everybody over here is group two, and everybody over here is group one. Okay? And you're going to do different things depending on whether you're in group two or group one. Now, first of all, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show something to group one. So I'm going to ask group two if you would close your eyes and look away. All right? Group one, I'd like you to look at what's on the screen now. Okay, group two, you could open your eyes. Group one, I'd like you to close your eyes and look away from the screen. Okay, everybody can open their eyes. And in a moment, I'm going to put something up on the screen. When I put it up on the screen, I'd like everybody to call out, as soon as I put it up on the screen, what they see. And just to check, you've got air in your lungs. Would you all call out, yes, now? Yes! now. Okay. (laughs) So, as soon as it comes up on the screen, I want you to call out what you see.
2: 13.
1: What I saw from here was a bunch of people calling out 13 and a bunch of people calling out B. Didn't work completely in each case, but let me show you what I put up before. So, For those of you who called out B, I guess those were people mostly in the A, B, C group, Um, and for those of you who called out 13, on the whole people in the 12, 13, 14 group, uh, what was going on there is that what you see is framed by the context. Literally, the context defines what we see. So, I want to move on to my first major example of the problems of translation. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's become very common for people, especially in the US, uh, especially politicians, to claim that capitalism is one. While it's certainly true that capitalism is the dominant economic system across the world, this claim does, though, mask tremendous diversity. And even in Western Europe, we see enormous diversity in how national political economies work. And that's lied behind some of the things that I've been interested in um, in the transfer of management practices within multinationals. And there's lots of ways of thinking about different forms of capitalism, but one common way um, is to consider two ideal types of liberal market economies and coordinated market economies. Liberal market economies, um, amongst which the US and the UK count, are characterised by firms coordinating their activities between each other, mostly through markets. Um, The employment relationship is mostly mediated through markets. Indeed, in in the US, which is the archetypical uh, (coughs) liberal market economy, uh, there is this doctrine of fire at will, the notion that employers have the right to hire and fire at will. And the employment relationship is is, uh, mediated through markets almost entirely. Um, Pay tends to be negotiated either at the individual level or at the workplace level. There's a strong emphasis on the rights of shareholders, in, in firm governance. On the other hand, in coordinated market economies, what you see is that um, often you have quite strong industry associations, and cross-ownership is, is often important. It takes different forms in different economies. So for example, in the German economy, what you see is that in a particular industry sector, often you'll have banks that have, uh, a, a lot of um, a firm capital comes through banks rather than the stock market in Germany you'll have banks that hold considerable stakes in many firms in the same sector, and they act as a channel for coordination in the sector. In Japan, large corporations tend to hold very large shareholdings in each other, and again, that acts as a, a channel for cooperation. Employment security and regulation tends to, be, uh, it tends to be very high in these economies. It's actually, If you've hired someone, it's actually quite hard to dismiss them. And pay bargaining tends to be at the level of the sector, so that competition over wages is taken out of workplace bargaining. Different firms in the same sector can't compete by driving down their wages relative to each other. And there is emphasis on the right of shareholders, but it's alongside other stakeholders. Very importantly, um, employees having rights, for example, in supervisory boards to be consulted through works councils and so on. So you've got very different forms of capitalism running at, at, at these different ends of the scale. Um, and just to give some sense of how that's distributed across different countries, this is some work by Hall and Gingrich, who've used econometric data to characterize countries and where they stand on the liberal market economy down to um, coordinated market economy. Although this slide's not coming very, out very well at this scale, you can see that at the liberal market end, you've got the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, New Zealand. At the coordinated market end, you've got uh, Italy, Germany, Australia. Interestingly, actually, uh, they've also done some research, um, Hall and Gringrich, on this data, which looks at growth rates uh, taking other factors into account Mm -hmm. uh, in different economies. And their conclusion is that growth rates tend to be better at either end of the scale, that it's the countries in the middle that do worst. And one of the interesting things that's going on in Europe at the moment is that there's convergence towards the centre. EU legislation like Working Time Directive, like the um, uh, Information and Consultation Directive is bringing the UK a little more in line with uh, European ways of doing things, continental European ways of doing things, well, whilst people like Angela Merkel are very keen to move more in the liberal market economy direction um, in Germany. Uh, it's an interesting question whether we could end up with the worst of both worlds. I want to turn for a little bit to why, why management practice travels. Well, one very important reason uh, is often that it travels through multinationals. And multinational firms will often see their management practices as a source of advantage and seek to transfer them to subsidiaries. So, for example, American multinationals will often see their particular approach to performance management um, as driving performance in their organisations and seek to roll it out around the world. Um, Rank Xerox, a very good example of a company that has seen itself as having a very particular approach to customer service and sought to roll that out in the same way in whichever country in which it operates. So very often it's because there's there's some perceived strategic advantage to doing so. Globalised management education, though, has been very important as well. Um, First of all, um, many people go and study in big American schools, um, which promote a very American approach to management. But what 's interesting is that if you go to European uh, business schools, if you go to Asian business schools, often the curriculum looks very, very similar to the curriculum curriculum in, in american schools and what 's being pushed in many business schools around the world is actually a, a version of American management finally there 's increasing levels of transnational regulation so uh, the European Union, for example, regulates over all kinds of things relevant to management practice, and I've just mentioned the Working Time Directive and uh, Information Consultation Directive. Uh, the World Trade Organization starts to have an influence, uh, as do standard organizations like Environmental and Quality Standards Organizations. Some of um, my own research with uh, with colleagues like, like Stephen um, has concerned what are the conditions in which... Uh, practices actually get transferred and you notice I'm talking about transfer at the moment I haven't got on to talking about translation that's coming next when I talk about the outcomes but why what are the conditions in which um, the headquarters of a multinational decides it wants to try and transfer practices to other parts of the world well on the positive side as I've said they will do so if they see the practice is strategically important um, if the multinational f- faces globally integrated markets, and by that I mean customers look very similar around the world, um, or maybe they're even facing the same customer, if it's business to business, the same multinational customer in most of, the inv- it, most of the markets in which they operate. One company I'll talk about later, the Gates Rubber Company, was exactly in that position um, because it had Xerox for Xerox's uh, photocopier machines as a customer around the world. Um, Equally, if a subsidiary is completely integrated into its parents' operations as opposed to having a a degree of autonomy and it's standing alone. Um, On the negative side, if there's a large institutional or cultural gap, if the um, multinational needs to be responsive to very different kinds of local markets. However, um, the outcomes of attempted transfer can vary a great deal, and I want to move on to talking about translation here. And two important dimensions in which they can vary are, first, uh, internalisation, the extent to which do people locally buy in. The video right at the uh, beginning, we saw there wasn't like to be a great deal of buying going on there. Um, and secondly, how much do the practices get effectively customised to the local context? And I'm going to give some examples of, uh, of each combination. So first of all, it's possible that something just gets transferred, an example of this I came across, I was talking to people in the Gates Rubber Company, um, and they'd been put under pressure by uh, one of their customers, Xerox, to take on the Baldridge Award. Now, the Baldridge Award is approached to quality management, and it's, it's a very American-style approach. Um, and they, first of all, decided to roll it out in their UK operations. Now, what they were able to do was uh, to roll it out very much as it had been designed because of a very great deal of similarity in the context. They set up uh, quality circles. There was a big emphasis on getting individual employees on board. But when they came out to roll it out in their uh, German operation, they decided quite sensibly uh, that the context was very, very different, and it would have to work in a very different kind of way. So they started off working in great detail with the Works Council, and the Works Council's view was, uh, as it would be in Germany, that one of the things that was going on here was a change to job descriptions, that there would be needs to set up training programmes to set up the right kinds of skills for workers to engage in these sorts of processes. And they worked through all of this with the Works Council and set it up jointly with the Works Council in a way that led to a successful rollout. So they did, in the end, get internalisation, but the process worked very differently in the German context. So you had a genuine process of translating the Baldrige Award into a German context. But of course it's possible that people don't buy in. Um, and one very interesting example of this I came across recently. Um, one of my PhD students, Siti uh, Yusof, has been studying the transfer of health and safety practices from a UK multinational parent into the Malaysian subsidiaries. And if you go and talk to the senior managers there, as uh, Siti did, you will find that they say, yes, of course, these have all been successfully rolled out. we have got our yellow book of safety procedures and it's all done. And it sort of is. If you go and talk to the workers and the supervisors, what you find out is that, yes, they do wear their safety clothing. They wear their safety goggles, by and large, around their necks. By and large, people don't smoke on the shop floor anymore. They go and smoke behind the volatiles tank. (laughs) And they have indeed marked out with yellow lines safe working areas that um, that the moving trucks and forklift trucks are not allowed to go into. The only thing is they've been hatched out in such a way as it's impossible for the forklift trucks to turn, up, turn around without going into them. So everybody ignores them. So what you've got there is you've got a purely ceremonial adoption, a box-sticking approach. Finally, what may happen um, is that a practice does get customised, but people don't buy into what lies underneath it. And it's co-opted or corrupted to serve the status quo and actually to strengthen the way things are done already. And a very good example of this I came across um, was running a programme for a large uh, elevator company, multinational elevator company who had just rolled out an American-style performance management process around the world. And I was very interested in this, so I asked them how it had gone. And in particular, I was interested how the Taiwanese managers uh, felt it had gone in their part of the world. Because as we've already discussed, this is not a very good fit For the Chinese approach to management. They assured me it was fine. But later, over lunch, the two Taiwanese managers came and approached me and said, would I really like to know what happened? Of course, I I did. And they explained that what they did is that once a year, they went and sat in a room as a group of senior managers and determined, as they always had, who should be promoted, what bonuses should be given out, how people should be paid. And then they sent a clerk off into another room uh, to fill in all the appraisal forms in such a way as it would give them the result that they needed. Uh, The process had been corrupted to completely serve the status (coughs) quo. Okay. I want to turn now to the problem of translating from the private to the public sector. Um, And I'm going to use an example here, some research... Uh, that was carried out by Lozano and colleagues um, and reported in Human Relations. And what they were interested in was the introduction of formal strategic planning into hospitals. What they did is they went and studied 33 separate hospitals, but the first thing they did is to look at um, what they took to be the assumptions underpinning formal strategic planning in the private sector and the context into which they were being translated. And it was quite an interesting comparison. First of all, Uh, externally, they felt that uh, strategic planning assumptions generally assume that there's a strong market influence on the organisation and that the organisation has a great deal of autonomy in setting strategic objectives. Secondly, that internally, uh, there is a chief executive who can actually make things happen and a top-down hierarchy. Whereas in the public hospital setting, that one finds that market forces and customer influence are quite weak Um, and that the government, unions, and professional groups considerably constrain the strategic choices that can be made within the hospital environment. Internally, leadership is diffuse. Why? Because chief executives do not have the same kind of power as they do in the private sector. Actually, they have to contend with very powerful professional groups. And decisions get made through the interaction between those powerful professional groups. And... um, the the hierarchy that sits under the chief executive, and that leads to often some quite local definition of priorities. What did they find the outcomes were? Well, in the terms that I've already discussed, talking about transfer across national boundaries, by and large, the outcomes were either ceremonial adoption or corruption. First of all, they found that um, in many cases, what was produced were largely glossy booklets for public circulation, vague aspirations, and goals which depend on external funding beyond the control of the hospital. In other cases, uh, by and large, the planning process had been co-opted as a forum for political battles between, political group, between professional groups rather than employed as an analytical process. And outputs were used less as a basis for action than a basis for negotiation with regulators and funders. Now... I don't think any of that is to argue that one shouldn't engage in strategic planning within a hospital environment. But it says something about the problems of carrying out that kind of translation. Uh, Similarly, in this organisation, we have translated things from the private sector, uh, as many universities do. So, for example, we've translated a business appraisal process from the private sector into uh, a university environment. It has turned out to be quite difficult to do. And I think... Um, It is still open to question at the moment, in my view, whether or not that's been successfully done for us, or whether we will end up with more bureaucracy and rather less control. Finally, I want to talk about the translation between the academy and the workplace. Um, I've had the fortune to direct the Centre for Practice-Based Professional Learning over the last year, and it's one of four government-funded centres for excellence in teaching and learning uh, at this university. I think we're the only university uh, apart from one other with that many centres for excellence. And it's given me the opportunity to think about how some of these ideas about translation can be trans- transferred into the context of thinking about teaching and learning in the university environment. It's given me a, a particular pleasure to be able to work with colleagues, some of whom are here, uh, from other faculties. Um, in, uh, who are concerned with the, the training of uh, teachers of nurses of social workers, um, as well as the managers that i 've been concerned with um, and it 's been a great pleasure to see some of the uh, some of the uh, cross fertilization of ideas that 's flowed across those faculties it 's also given me the opportunity to have conversations with some very interesting people like Etienne Wenger and David Boot. I want to just give you a quote from a student that Um, I was running an an online discussion group uh, just a a week ago, and um, we were talking about the problems students were actually setting up projects for themselves, Um, and we were talking about what it was like to try and use uh, the ideas from their courses in their projects practically in their own organisations. And Sean, that's Sean Vincent, he's very kindly given me permission to quote him, Uh, talked about struggling to see direct links between discussions and theory and that sometimes it felt like there's this tendency to make theory fit the good management discussions we've been having almost after the event rather than theory providing the insight that supports sound management discussion and his his problems with struggling with bringing together theory and practice. And I posed the question to him and the rest of the group, um, what makes it so hard? And his reply is very relevant to the topic of the lecture and quite thoughtful, so I'll read some of it out. I've been giving some more thought to Mark's question as to why I often find it difficult to bring theory into the workplace. Well, people tend to form into groups according to all sorts of criteria, politics, class, geography, religion, he lists quite a few. Within each of these groupings, communication styles and protocols emerge that help people to belong to and communicate more effectively with others from the same grouping. However, these communication styles can easily create barriers to communication between groups. In my experience, um, I've come across a group, and he's working in Thailand at the moment, which is why we're communicating online. In Thailand, there's a powerful social pressure group called Forum for the Poor. What's interesting, its communication style focuses heavily on mass protests, street rallies, etc., to ensure poor farmers' rights and needs and aspirations are heard. However, the forum also has close links to some MPs, and it's these MPs that try and ensure the same issues are heard in Parliament. And they achieve this by taking the forum's messages and translating them into the communication styles that are appropriate to their audience. Street protest is translated into written documentation, if you like. What seems to me as key is not only the forum's message, but the way it gets translated into formats that meet the expectations of different target audiences. And he draws parallels between that and the challenge that he faces and says it helps him to understand why... I often feel so often like the one in the middle with a responsibility to translate OU speak into practice. And I can think of two contributing factors that might explain why I find this role so difficult. He talks about first of all how touchy tutors and academics can be when referencing an article incorrectly in an assignment or how many marks can be awarded for simply following academic protocols. And B how some work colleagues can be very touchy when he suggests that they might benefit from reflecting on current practice using some models. And he goes on to reflect in some depth about the problems of making that happen and how he might do it more effectively. Um, Here's something that came out of that conversation with Etienne Wenger that I referred to, um, and my thanks to him for helping me formulate these two pictures. I, I think to follow on from Sean's thoughts, it's worth considering the relationship between the world of the academy and the world of management practice, and well, I think I want to suggest that the, the tacit model subscribed to in many universities and business schools is rather hierarchical. Academic knowledge sits above practice knowledge in some sense. I'll give you a picture. Generalizable academic knowledge uh, gets translated into the workplace through teaching and consulting. And we take the, uh, the crude world of raw experience and data in the practice setting and turn it into generalizable knowledge, which can be in further cycles, Uh, turned into prescriptions for substantive managerial actions. Now that may be a little bit of a caricature, but I want to counterpose it to uh, a different way of understanding the relationship between the academy and practice, which is that you've got two worlds in which knowledge is being produced, and not that knowledge is useful in both of them, but for that knowledge to be meaningful and to make sense and to be useful in the other world, there needs to be a process of translation. And the conclusion I draw from that is that one of the things in higher education we ought to be in the business of is rather than just giving our students content knowledge and talking about application, we ought to be teaching them the skills of translation. (laughs) Just finish off with a a few comments about how some of the things we know about the nature of professional expertise fits into this. Um, There's a a wonderful critique by the Dreyfus brothers of the expert system literature. And one of the things that they point out is that expertise isn't a process of proceeding via experience from the particular to constructing mental models of greater and greater generality. Actually, theory-driven behavior is by and large a characteristic of the novice, not of the expert. What they suggest, and what many people in the expertise literature increasingly suggest, is that what characterizes the expert is the ability to recognize situations, and to recognize situations out of the experience of very, very many different kinds of finely nuanced situations. We also know that experts are very good at integrating their formal theoretical knowledge, their informal knowledge that comes, uh, it's often quite tacit, that comes through experience, and their self-regulative knowledge about how how they, they learn, their understanding of how they learn themselves, about how they manage themselves. And in all of this, informal learning and tacit knowledge are highly important. But, and maybe this is where higher education comes back in quite importantly, we also know that people who've got really sound expertise are pretty good at critiquing their own practice as well and using uh, different kinds of frameworks for subjecting their practice to critique. And just to give an example from uh, the work that I've done with uh, Nigel and Emma and, and also Paul Wilman on traders and investment banks, Uh, When we talk to traders, um, these are guys uh, often who've got PhDs in engineering and quantum mechanics, highly trained in financial economics. Uh, We found that um, rather than talking about people's intelligence or people's fine understanding of economics, financial economics, often when we ask them what makes the difference between a really effective trader and an ineffective trader, they use words like flair, like gut feel, like a, a sense for the market. Um, we also found that they moved between formal theories of how the world works um, in terms of financial economics, theories, of, formal theories of markets, very interested in things like yield curves and so on, and much more provisional, privately held theories of how to work the world, how to manage the exceptions around the general rules, how to make money in these markets. And What was quite interesting, and it's not how the study started off for me, but for me, one of the things that it became quite importantly about is how traders learn and how do they develop these kinds of skills. Well, here's here's what I mean by recognising situations. Um, This is a very experienced trader talking um, who was a trader manager. Six weeks ago, I woke up on Sunday, read all the Sunday papers and decided the market was about to turn. Monday, I told my traders, you can be level or long, but don't come back short. Having two guys with 60 years market experience helped the firm make a lot of money out of the market. Here's what some of them said about flair. It's like having it's, it's like having whiskers, like being a deer. You need a certain type of intelligence, but it's more about intuition. People who've done well with this, are those are the very street smart rather than book smart, but there are lots of exceptions to that. So how do traders become a trader? Well, actually... Although there's formal learning, there's a very important apprenticeship process goes on. Typically takes about two years. And this is a young trader talking about as part of that process as you've moved on from just sitting beside and watching another trader. First, you watch what other people are doing, follow and react. You don't buy unless someone else buys. If a customer buys from you, buy it back straight away because you don't know whether you want to stay short in it and so on. Secondly, you understand what's going on. You can predict the price action. You begin to realise you can predict it right more than you predict it wrong but you haven't yet discovered the appetite of putting money at risk. And it's at that stage that some people never progress. And he goes on to say there's a lot of people who never quite get there and won't make money in the business at all. Well, one of the things that seems to be going on is that for traders to become really expert professionals, it's this combination of formal education and informal education and the ability to constantly move between the two, the ability to constantly be thinking about translating between the world of theory and the world of practice. So some conclusions. I only have two. <clears throat> First of all, um, I think that we need to teach the skills of translating between context. I think that's something that we ought to focus on in higher education a very great deal, especially when we're concerned with training professionals. And I think that the learning experiences which allow exposure to complex contexts of application are absolutely vital. For me. I'm, My first degree was in pure mathematics. I I loved it. And I learned all sorts of things about ring theory, about formal proof, about mathematics on manifolds. But I also learned some other things I didn't realise I was learning at the time. I learned that all problems come neatly packaged and that all problems have a right answer. And I think often in higher education, we teach those things to our students along with the rest. We teach them uh, that... It's not finding out what the problem is that's the, that, you, that you need to worry about, it's solving it. Actually, in the, in the real world of professional practice, identifying the problem is often most of it. Um, we teach them that, you know, we do this in business schools a lot, we give them a nice cleaned up case study where we've signalled for them what the problem is and more or less what the particular theories that need to be applied are. And what we don't do is we don't get them to practice the, the very difficult and messy skills of trying to translate ideas into real situations which are messy and difficult and complex. So just to finish, I, um, as I've I said, I believe in higher education. We often spend too much time teaching students to solve problems and not enough time uh, to um, think about what the problems might be. And in that spirit, I've concentrated mostly on what I think the problem is, translation. But I do want to finish on a positive note, so um, I've been thinking about what advice can I offer. and It's in the form of a motto for anybody involved in translating practice from one context to another. And uh, Julie, Garden sa- Julie Garland says it so much better than me, so I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to leave it to her. Toto,
4: I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
1: So next time... <laughs> Next time you come across someone who's trying to translate an idea from one context to another, just say to them, Dorothy, you're not in Kansas anymore. Thank you very much.
3: Isn't it great to have ideas that really catch you, get you thinking and stimulate you? I think Mark's done that. His last example, the traders, brought to mind a story that a colleague of mine, who's involved in computerizing trading floors, told me. He said that uh, this trader, who'd been a Cockney Barrow boy and was a star trader in this firm, was being introduced to some key clients by the bosses of the firm. And A bit like uh, in My Fair Lady, he comes out with immortal words when he's asked, what's it like being a trader? He said, oh, it's a bit like gambling on the horses, except it's with other people's money. (laughs) (laughs) So you've got lost in translation there with a vengeance. As a dean of the OU Business School, I'm delighted to welcome Mark into our professorial ranks, I must say that since I first joined in January 2005, I've been delighted by the quality, the caliber, the enthusiasm, and the support of all my professorial colleagues, uh, both within the business school and in the wider OU, and none more than Mark. He's shown exemplary academic leadership and exuberant enthusiasm for everything he does. He's always had a lot to say, But it's always been worth listening to, which is certainly not true of everyone who has a lot to say. He's shown real organizational and practical capability in heading up the first year of the practice-based professional (coughs) learning settle. And that's an enterprise I think is crucial uh, for deepening the knowledge of the business school and of the Open University about pedagogy. I very much think that's our major, world-leading, distinctive strength amongst all institutions of higher learning. He also has shown real managerial flair, as befits someone working in the business school, of course, in his sure touch as our Director of Programs and Curriculum. That's a critical role in revitalizing the business school in these challenging times. Not only is he refreshingly thoughtful, positive, and enthusiastic, in the face of the the sometimes daunting challenges, but he's eminently capable of being frank and direct and constructively critical, something, I must say, I've benefited from greatly on a number of occasions. (laughs) I would like to take the opportunity tonight of publicly recognizing the terrific, reasoned, reasonable, and impartial support that he's afforded me coming in to the school as a new dean. I think it's true to say that no one else in the university has done quite as much as Mark in introducing me to the subtleties, to the vagaries, and to the impressivenesses of this grand institution, Open university. So thank you, Mark. Thus, Vice-Chancellor, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, before joining us for some refreshments outside, it's my very great pleasure to propose a vote of thanks to Professor Mark fenton creevy Accomplished academic, business school stalwart, and superbly effective manager.